without having a lot of people to you know talk to about what they're doing and what works for them it was really lonely experience so that's the benefit now right that there are such community online localized communities makes it a lot easier That's Colin Lacey, Senior Software Engineer at Cisco. In this episode of the Cisco Learning Network podcast, Colin speaks with Community Manager Matt Saunders and Lead Tech Advocate Kareem Iskander, whom we've had on the show before. Colin speaks to Matt and Kareem about pursuing a career in software engineering, how to get started, the resources to use, how to grow a career in this specific role, and why software engineers should learn the skill sets of a network engineer. Colin also recounts the lessons he's learned throughout his own career, the challenges he's faced throughout the high-paced and changing world of software, what's helped him get ahead, and much more. But first, Matt asks Colin about how he got started, and the answer may surprise you. Hey, so Colin, one of the things that I always find super interesting in my job as working with the learning and certifications community is how people got to where they're at in their career and how they came to certifications as a decision in their professional development path, right? And we learned that a lot of folks start off in college and some other area of focus entirely. I was super interested to hear that that was the same for you as well. You want to tell folks a little bit about that? Where did you start with college? I was all over the place in college. I started with a chemistry major for about a month and a half. And then I switched to, I'm going to say English, but that could also be wrong. I ultimately wrapped up with um, double major, communications and philosophy. And I don't use either of those. I've never really used either of those. Out of college, I was living in New Orleans, and my first job out of college was a waiter in the French Quarter. Standard story of, you know, heading into the Great Recession. Spent about a year there, and then I actually got a job in restaurant marketing, which I stayed at for five years, but it came with a bit of a caveat. It was 2008 when I started that job, and, you know, just about every company in the country was looking to digitize shrink costs, right? Be more efficient. So we launched an email marketing program essentially as I started that job. And as the youngest person in the office by like 10 years, I was tasked with figuring out how do we do email marketing? And that was how I learned HTML and some light CSS. At the time, email did not support CSS very well. It was very old school HTML, but I did learn my way around HTML and CSS that way. And word got around with my friends and some of them were starting their own businesses. So they asked, well, hey, can you build a website for me? Or, you know, started with just like, can you build a web page for me? And the answer was yes. You know, I could do that. And then I was enough to be dangerous, got my hands on some. So from 2009 to around 2012, Colin explains that he bounced around different languages early in his career. He went from WordPress to Rails to Django to Drupal. That. Ultimately, like it was just a lot of hopping around and a lot of frameworks that did mostly the same thing. It was just a lot of trend following. And I think that was that was probably the biggest challenge starting out was which trend do I follow? Who's right? Which blog post do I listen to? And that was really, really hard to navigate. And it still is, actually. It's really still is. Like even nowadays when we're talking about, well, what are we going to automate in or not? Like, Am I going to take on Go or should I stick with Python? But Go is what people are talking about. So like, it hasn't changed much, Colin. 
It has not. So 2011, right around the time responsive design was becoming a really hot topic for discussion and, and you could put it on your resume and people would raise eyebrows like, wow. I read a really well-written blog post about why you should do desktop first if you're going to do responsive design, which is the opposite of conventional wisdom, right? But let me tell you, this was a well-written article. I was thoroughly convinced. Yeah, I was for like four months. I actually did desktop first. And, you know, at first I was like, well, this isn't easier, but I'm probably doing it wrong. No, I, it just, it, it was so much harder. So I quickly learned my lesson there. Well, I don't know if four months is quickly, but I did learn my lesson. So going back to how I got where I am, I'm entirely self-taught and I don't recommend it. There are a lot of easier ways to get to where I am. Around 2013 is when I actually bought my first subscription package. It was Team Treehouse to age myself here. But I did buy, like a, I don't know, a three-month subscription or something like that. And I didn't use it because I was just so used to diving into books. That's effectively how I've learned ever since. It's just books. I have taken you know, plenty of Udemy courses. I've taken Cisco U courses and a lot of just reading documentation at night. I've learned that if I can't fall asleep, reading documentation will definitely do the trick. I learned Node.js doing that actually in 2015. I started a new job. I was stressed out. I was working late and you know, I go to bed having just pushed a Git commit and I'd just be fried, right? I could not possibly close my eyes. So I would read Node.js documentation. <laughs> it knocked me out, man. <laughs> that will put you to sleep. That's kind of awesome, actually, to think about it. Uh, Colin's pretty interesting because, you know, just listening to your journey or where you got and how far you've gotten, you know, I finished computer engineering right out of college. I started Cisco, seeing what you've done and what you've accomplished and where you are today. And, you know, you're in software and, you know, I'm in software as well. And we've taken different journeys in the beginning, but it's, it's about learning towards the end because getting out of college, we did what? We did C++ at the time, took basic networking. I probably didn't understand half of it. I actually, as a matter of fact, like right out of college, I thought software engineering and software development is, is not something that I wanted to do. I never understood the logic and just found myself reading books and reading, taking content online around building i think the first thing i did was cold fusion at the time how to build the backend scripts for talk to oracle via db via cold fusion and then using adobe flex at the time to build a desktop application so i was reading documentation for that for cisco actually and so like a completely different routes but at the end it just shows you like it's all about learning it's all about reading it's all about like immersing yourself in what's happening today yeah definitely and I could just be honest, if I go like six or seven months without learning something new, I get itchy. I'm in like information or technology, which some form of withdrawal where I just feel like, all right, I'm falling behind on something I should be keeping up with. It's not necessarily a, I should have learned X, Y, or Z by now, right? It's just, I know that technology is still moving. I need to be moving with it, right? And it's tough you know, having that fighter spirit of like, keep at it, keep going, keep learning you know, stumble through error after error as you try to replicate what someone else did. But it's rewarding to keep up with it, right? See your own skills progress and see your career progress as a result.
when you were starting on that path, making that transition, you probably didn't obviously didn't realize the transition you were really making at the time. You know, it, it tends to evolve that way. I was a big Adobe guy early on coming out of college. And so Adobe textbooks and then lynda.com. And then as I started getting pulled into networking and IT world as well, that learning curve, right? And Kareem and I have talked about this before in other episodes of the podcast of walking the bookstore aisles and looking at the rather large books that, you know, were available for purchase at the time. What was that experience like for you kind of starting to pick things up? Was that frightening and terrifying as it was for me? It was definitely frightening, but it was frightening in the sense of like, okay, I know I'm going to get the crap kicked out of me by this next book I'm going to buy. Which book do I want to do it? And, you know, just kind of going in with that mentality, there's going to be a lot of black coffee, a lot of, you know, miserable nights going to bed, feeling defeated. And then knowing that, well, in the beginning, I wasn't so sure, but eventually knowing that, okay, by the end of this book, by the time I actually close the last page on this book, I will understand what's in it. In the beginning, I would say that there was a rush to just page through books without necessarily understanding everything, thinking like, okay, I'll get this by the time I finish this book, right? If I just keep on turning the pages, as opposed to, you know, I would say maybe early to middle career is when I really focused on making sure before I start the next chapter, let me make sure I understand what's in this chapter. At that point, enough experience had taught me what's in this chapter will come up again and I'll be expected to know it in the next chapter, right? Everything builds. You can't get away with just like going through the motions. And even if you can, it's not helpful. You know, so as a result, yeah, there were a lot of just rough days or hunched over the computer with my shoulders burning, like, why can't I get this to work? And then you find out it's a typo somewhere. In some cases, if I had better tooling, I would have caught instantly. But, you know, you learn as you go. I think as actually that was one of the hardest things for me was knowing what tooling to use. Because, you know, as self-taught, I actually didn't have a community. And there weren't really online communities or even, you know, major software communities in New Orleans at the time, because that's where I lived. You know, there weren't meetups like there are now. So for me, it was, uh, I'm going to learn, I'm going to Google, and I'm going to get lost in the, what was it at the time? Well, I was using Dreamweaver to begin with. Like you said, Matt, Adobe, Adobe, obviously all the way. So I was using Dreamweaver. I was fortunate enough to have just missed Flash. So I did not lose an entire skill set when that went under. But no, I was using Dreamweaver. And then I forget what it was that came after that, that, you know, everyone had to be using. Eventually Sublime Text became the dominant one. But at the time when I was using Dreamweaver, I thought, well, this is better than text edit. I must be professional now without having a lot of people to, you know, talk to about what they're doing and what works for them. It was really lonely experience. So that's the benefit now, right? That there are such community online, localized communities makes it a lot easier. And you raised a good point too, in the beginning about choosing which one, right? Like you got three books in front of you. I don't know how many it was back then versus how many it is now, but you, you know, you have multiple learning resource options and like exactly like you said like deciding like which one should i leverage that's a definitely a very real factor in there yeah yeah it is i would say in my experience it's hard to go wrong i did once pick up a book that had just come out first edition like two weeks before i bought it and i got burned pretty bad with that you know, there were some typos it was rushed out it was not a great purchase but other than that all the other books that i bought you know i've got what do I got on my shelf here? Advanced Python, all the Cisco Press books, AWS Solutions Architect, right? Those are all great books. They got me where I needed to be. It's hard to go wrong unless you read a blog that advises you to build for desktop first 
in order to <laughs> yeah don't do that yeah, yeah. that's I, I think you know that's that's the dangerous world of blogs is you are rolling the dice with that especially if it's a hey this is the right way to do it blog right because that was a very big early mistake that i made was seeking out the right way i think that's everybody colin because i remember having conversations when i first started my flash adobe journey and cloak fusion where i didn't even actually know if i was writing code or not so i was looking at quote unquote the right way to do things that was one of my like when we go out to train or when we talk when i talk to somebody about what the project i'm working on what i at the time i was like 23 24 and so when i was talking to these folks have been in the industry for so long that you look to them for guidance, right? And the initial kind of question that you always get is, hey, look, I'm building this. Is this the right way of doing it? And then quickly, I learned that there is no right or wrong way as long as you're actually your code is efficient, as long as your code is being reviewed by your peers and you have a proper process in place. There's no right or wrong way. It's like, you know, at the end of the day, from a programming perspective, it's like writing an essay. You're going to have your style. You know, you're going to have the way that you compose your paragraphs and you're going to have the way that different words that vocabulary words that you use. It's exactly the same way, you know, writing code or cutting code. I'll be honest with you guys. That's something that plagued me early on. I felt like I would run into a wall and I would tell myself, oh, you're not doing this the right way. I let myself get intimidated by that. You also mentioned something else, Colin. I didn't have the right mindset of it's only a matter of time until I figure it out. I had the mindset at that time of I'm doing this the wrong way. I would let that defeat me a little bit. So I'm really glad you guys mentioned that, that there is no right or wrong way necessarily exactly. And Kareem, what you said about peer reviews and it being a personal style issue. And Colin, you having the perseverance to just persevere through those challenges is really admirable. Thanks. A lot of it came from, you know, I did develop imposter syndrome very early on, right? Being self-taught, I just assumed everyone knew way more than I did about everything there is to know. And so I had this permanent mindset of I'm coming from behind that plagued me, I would say for the first, I don't know, seven or eight years of, of my career in software to the point where I refused to say that I was even, you know, building software because I didn't think what I was doing was good enough to be called. And it's like, oh, I can build, you know, an Angular website, but, you know, is that software? No, that's not software. What they're doing in Java over there that I can't speak to, or I couldn't at the time, that's software. And that was my mentality. And, you know, looking back, I was wrong, but the silver lining there was that it helped me develop that drive to continuously learn, to never stop learning and always listen to, you know, if I hear a word that I don't know what it means, I'll go look it up. That's actually how I got started on Kubernetes. Colin just mentioned Kubernetes, which is an open source system for automating deployment, scaling, and management of containerized applications. On its website, kubernetes.io, they say, quote, it groups containers that make up an application into logical units for easy management and discovery. Kubernetes builds upon 15 years of experience of running production workloads at Google, combined with best-of-breed ideas and practices from the community. One day when I was at GE, you know, we were running on AWS in EC2s. We used Pivotal Cloud Foundry at the time, but we had a senior engineer or an architect who was visiting from GE Aviation in Cincinnati, and he mentioned how hard it was to stand up a Kubernetes cluster. And I was like, well, I don't know what one of those words means. Cluster, what could that possibly, like, there's a lot of ways I could go with it, what, what, what that even means. You know, let me look that up. And I looked it up and I'm like, that sounds cool. I immediately wanted to prove, because you know, I was still 
I still had that defensive mentality of like, well, Pivotal Cloud Foundry, that's what we use. We must be doing it right, right? So let me look into this Kubernetes thing and justify our reasoning for PCF. But, you know, as I learned it, I was like, yeah, this is actually really awesome. I want to do this. I want to do this a lot more. (laughs) I'm curious, like in listening to you talk about your journey to where you started and putting it in perspective, what you're doing today as well, like you went front end you know, coding and and front-end design and writing HTML. And then somehow you end up in like infrastructure kind of engineering. And I think you're doing low-level firmware coding today, if I'm not mistaken. So Not firmware. No, I I would understand why you think that. I am in the hardware group of Cisco, right? I'll give you the full rundown for the five-minute version. When I was freelancing, I was doing a lot of WordPress websites, some contract work for Rails, some contract work for Django. Eventually, I got a job as a front-end developer with a university in New Orleans, Loyola University. And then I started a GE in 2014, the fall of 2014. So that was right before GE Capital was sold. And I started with GE Capital. They sold, I think, like three months after I started. And we were all wondering, like, are we going to be homeless? Are we all going to get laid off? Then GE Digital was announced, right? And okay, now we're all GE Digital. So the project that I worked on, I was still Angular developer. If if you ask me what I was, even who I was, I am an Angular developer. The project that we started on was an offline-first mobile app written in Ionic, which is the mobile adapter framework for Angular. The offline-first aspect was a problem because none of us knew how to do that, and the packages for Ionic weren't released. So we actually worked with a team in GE, a team of mobile developers, that hacked the Ionic package to customize the you know how data is passed back and forth using a technology called Couchbase. And that was this big unknown world to all of us on the front end, on the back end, like our back end developers were all Java, right? They knew Java servers. That was their universe. So we had no one in our team that understood the first thing about building an offline mobile app. So I was talking to one of my architects and he was like, look, you know, someone's got to figure this out. You know, would you mind? taking a stab at it. So I did. I ended up flying back and forth to our GE digital office in San Ramon quite a bit. I spent at least every other month I would fly out to San Ramon and uh, work with that mobile team. But I learned a lot and I became kind of like the expert of how we do the Angular code into the offline code that lives on the Swift code. So that's kind of like how I carved a niche for myself. And through that, I was promoted to front end architect the offline first app became ported to a web experience. Some of our users were like, hey, it's great that it's on the mobile device, depending on who they were, right? If they were a field engineer at a power plant, they might want to go back to the trailer for their breakdown job and spend a few minutes in the air conditioning before they go out back out to the you know hot sun and where they're taking apart a power plant. Or if they're a field tech at a wind turbine. They might want to go back to their pickup truck that's parked within cellular reach and they might have a laptop in their pickup truck as opposed to being on the tower where there is no cellular signal and that's where they're working on on the offline app. So they would want to go back and forth between form factors. So my first project as front-end architect was port the offline Ionic app into a web browser experience. And that was hard. I, I think differentiating myself in that sense of understanding the full technology behind offline first and how that maps and how we can abstract all the same front end code from an offline first Ionic app to a online browser experience that really helped propel my career. And then from that point on, I used to joke with my manager at the time, you know, 
you made me an architect, but I never went to architect school. So how much of an architect can I be? It was that imposter syndrome. So he and I started talking about, well, you know, how can we build your career? And I don't remember if he suggested or if I suggested it, but it was, there's an AWS certification for solutions architects. Why don't I go after that? That changed my career. Just that was like the turning point where I moved off of the front end and started to really understand the full end-to-end -end experience, especially cloud. And that was also my first foray into certifications. And I really bought in heavily, right? Certifications and the things that you learn by getting a certification is just invaluable, especially, you know, that was a very high in demand certification at the time. I don't know if it still is, but it definitely was at the time. What I learned there helped me every step of the way since, right? Understanding how cloud works. You know, I've worked on Azure projects and GCP projects, and a lot of the concepts that I learned in the AWS cert mapped almost one-to-one -to, -one to Azure or GCP. So it was really easy to transfer that as a skill set, not just a, there wasn't vendor lock-in. So the moral of the story here essentially is, and this is what I'm hearing that since the beginning of this episode, is it's about community. It's about learning never stops. And it's about certifying your learning via certifications, which is what we do, Matt. <laughs> sure enough. <laughs> you know, Colin, as you're getting into that certification journey world, right? Trusting your sources and identifying your sources and your learning paths. What's your guidance for folks on, on really solidifying who they should trust and what sources and learning paths they should trust to really move past that fear of uh, which, which one of these should I select? That's a good question. I would say the most natural and most reliable source is the official source, right? When I wanted my AWS cert, I went to AWS. When I wanted my Kubernetes cert, I went to the Linux Foundation. When I wanted my CCNA, right? I went to Cisco U. Go to the places that have the closest domain knowledge to the information, and that's the best way to learn. And then, you know, I mentioned documentation. It's not as exciting as a, you know, course written for education purposes, but it works. I think some of the best and most detailed documentation, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Istio. It's a service mesh that runs on top of Kubernetes. Yeah. The documentation section of their website is massive, but it's so well-written. That actually reads like, almost like a story. If the source doesn't have it, then probably the next place to go would be industry experts. I think with most high-in-demand skills, there's an industry expert out there somewhere publishing information. They're not hard to find. Also. The fact that courses are rated now really helps, right? Like when I started that Team Treehouse subscription, they were not rated, they were just there. And I didn't know how good one was going to be compared to another. But, you know, if you go on to Udemy or any learning site, there is generally a rating that'll tell you what people think of it. Community is huge in, in this aspect. And this is something that actually I'd like to see us do more of is chatting about what you're studying today and what is the value of some of the learning path that you're taking to what you're doing today. It would be an actually interesting conversation, not you know for the sake of like what we're doing here at, uh, at Cisco and Cisco U in general, but more for my learning and my career to, to see some of the, the CLN VIPs, to see some of the, the folks that are SMEs in a specific technology, listen to Colin talk about you know, his journey to Kubernetes and what he's doing with Kubernetes today and how he's building. I've always been into cloud native and learning how he's learned and he's gotten to that point would help me adopt some of his processes as well as his learning journey and what, what he has from books, from subscriptions. So having that community behind you to talk about is actually really important as well. It is. Being able to bounce ideas off of people or just, you know, ask 
does this even sound like it makes sense? Because a lot of that would have saved me plenty of time in the beginning. There were times when I thought, okay, I learned Ruby. Man, I learned the wrong language. Like, no, I didn't. There's <laughs> nothing wrong with Ruby. You know, there's plenty you can do in, in Ruby that, you know, you can do in every other language. But there were times when I just got down on myself thinking, well, this was the wrong language to learn. But especially, you know, a, a senior developer, senior engineer, someone who can mentor you and not judge you, but still guide you. That goes a long way. I didn't get that until I started at GE, and that really helped and in terms of grounding me and being more, uh, I guess, mature in my software development practice. Yeah, and I want to just jump in a little bit too, because one of the folks that helped me early on, and it, it gets into the topic, Colin, as well of, okay, so learning resources, identify that, select that, go to a trusted source. Documentation is so key as well. I'm glad you mentioned that. We talk about that on the Cisco Learning Network Community Forum all the time. These books are great, and this course is great. Use the documentation as well. It's such a great key point to drive home. As we go towards hands-on and labs, right? Getting the experience, banging on the keyboard. One of the things that you mentioned early on as we were kind of talking about what we want to talk about here was environment setup. And I can remember Kareem calling Quinn on your team, Quinn Snyder, to ask him, what the heck is Vim? And how the heck do I get around in Vim? And he spent a good hour walking me through that over the phone. So that peer-to-peer -peer guidance and just, you know, Colin, how would you recommend and advise folks to approach the challenge of deciding their environmental setups? That is a really good question. So, I mean, this is somewhere where community helps. I've been JetBrains fan ever since I stumbled across them. And I, that was something that I never would have found if a, another developer had just said like, hey, you're doing front end. Have you tried WebStorm? And then I did, and then I fell in love, and I've been paying for it ever since. Yeah, paying for it financially, not like paying for it in consequences. No, you, you know the feeling. It's great. You know, I, I've got nothing against VS Code. If I'm working with someone who, you know, wants to do, if there's a plugin for VS Code, I'll help them find it, you know, but for me, it's just brains. But what you're saying about environment setup actually is one of the, say, setbacks that I've had going to blogs. If you can't quality control the blog you're reading, right, then you also don't know what their starting point necessarily is. Especially in when I was learning Rails 2014 era, I would start on a blog and they'd say, all right, jump in and write this command in the, you know, whatever. And it turned out that they had installed a gem that I didn't have, right? Okay, well, let me go find that gem. Okay, well, that gem's got an undocumented dependency. So let me go download that gem. And it was kind of like, just in order to start the example in the blog, I would have to spend I don't know, half an hour, 45 minutes setting everything up. That gets tedious and depressing, to be honest, right? Uh, so that's another reason that going back to, you know, the source closest to the information is most likely to help because they're most likely to be quality controlled. Let's say they, they say, you know, and I think we do this in Cisco U, right? I think we say like, here's VS Code. It'll help you get started. It will totally help you get started. I've got nothing against VS Code. So if that's what the tutorial says to use, you know, I'll open it. I have it. And then I'll learn the concepts and the skills. And then if, you know, I want to pursue it, I'll figure out how to port it over to another editor. Maybe there's a VS Code plugin that doesn't exist in JetBrains, but I'll figure out a workaround or anytime I want to work on that thing, I pop open VS Code. 
that's certainly a possibility. Other than that, a lot of my environment setup is just ad hoc as I go. I just went through the uh, laptop refresh at Cisco. And so I know that there's stuff that I forgot to install. I just, I know I will get to it when I get to it, right? One day I'm going to go do something and it's not going to be there. And I'm okay. I guess I have not installed that yet this time. (laughs) If you haven't reinstalled it, you probably don't need it since you haven't touched it in a year. Exactly. Makes perfect sense. And I think to kind of jump into what you're saying here, you hit on something for me when you were talking about joining the community, especially when you use the JetBrain example and you've been a fan since you probably looked at what they have and gotten like that hands-on experience with their tool. And when you first were dabbling into like which IDE I'm going to use and looked at what they have to offer and you're like, yeah, this is for me, right? And this is kind of what we wanted to do from a learning perspective with Cisco U and Cisco U tutorials, right? Where we wanted to give our learners a bite size of like, okay, here's what a learning path around Kubernetes would entail why don't we go spin up a Kubernetes cluster together and we're going to use Kind. And it's going to be on your local machine and it's going to be super simple and you're going to learn what Kubernetes is and you're going to get some kubectl commands while you're at it and learn about it, right? And so that is the same approach for what we've done with Cisco U here from a tutorial perspective to give you kind of a bite-sized taste of what your investment into what you're going to put in from your time and efforts into a learning path. It's about taking that and taking these bite-sized learning into the Cisco learning network and saying, hey, we have this, go check it out. Maybe, you know, you've been doing monolithic application and you've been spinning huge VMs and you need to learn about how to kind of adopt that cloud native. And maybe you want to have microservices running and Kubernetes could be a solution for you. So like, go learn it. Like just hearing you say that, like kind of sparked that in my brain about how we've approached some of these concepts in Cisco U. Yeah, and to be honest, I think that's the right way to do it is if you're focusing on the skill or the concept behind the skill, a lot of overhead that goes into setting up the environment can absolutely ruin the experience, right? The more complex the environment setup, the more likely things are to go wrong. If it is like, hey, you want to get hands-on with Kubernetes? Start with Kind. Here it is. Brew install or, you know, I don't know what the Windows equivalent of it is, but just something that simple can get you to the concept that you're trying to learn. You don't need to spin up EKS or anything big. So yeah, I think that's a great approach to it. And Matt said it, I think Matt said it earlier. He's like, you know, as soon as I hit a wall, I was like, I don't know if I'm doing this right. Taking away that friction from the learner, especially if they're getting started, is really, really important. And in your case, Colin, this is like maybe like a minute example. In your case, JetBrain took away that friction and you've been a fan since, right? So... Yeah. And it's funny because it had a learning curve, right? I was used to text editors, right? Sublime Text was a text editor. I would not call that an IDE. You know, it's like, I want to start a new file. Let me just start a new file, right? Whereas in JetBrains, it's you're not starting a new file necessarily. You're adding to the project, right? And that has its own implications. So, you know, my first reaction was, well, why can't this just be as simple as I open WebStorm and I start a file? But once I changed my mindset a little bit and I saw the benefits of why I can't do that. It really clicked. Man, that was like nine years ago, I guess I've been using JetBrains now that I think about it. <laughs> I would say about the same. Just like anything, it learning curve is there and that's okay. I think that's okay. Stepping out of that comfort zone 
we just saw it in your story, right? Where you've stepped from stepped away from what what's chemistry and philosophy and into front end coding and then adopted like back end and you know microservices, going from probably monolithic. That in, in itself is like stepping out of your comfort zone every so often. And there's going to be a learning curve, and that learning curve is okay. There was some really good events at Cisco Live this year. One of the ones that I went to was, it was Executive Roundtable. It was put on by women at Cisco. And anyway, it was, you sit at a table, right? And it was like speed dating or speed socializing, whatever the actual name was. The concept was you get five minutes with a Cisco executive and then they rotate tables, right? And they bring a topic with them. So that they come, they sit down, they say, here's what I'm here to talk about. And the five people at the table, you know, have a discussion with them. And one of the executives, her advice to us in terms of building your career was every new job should be only 50% comfortable. If you want to build your career fast, get out of your comfort zone with every job you start and learn something completely new. If you take a bit of a microscopic approach to that, you could say that every new skill should be only 50% comfortable, right? And that's how you really expand is you get out of your comfort zone a little bit, right? I'm going to learn something new. Yes, it's probably going to be code and it might even be a language I already know, but I want it to be something that is still very foreign to me, right? Very unfamiliar. And I'm going to struggle at the beginning and then some things are going to click and I'm going to be able to perform a little better over and over until I can actually contribute and maybe present on it, maybe be on a team that, that works on that stuff, whatever the case may be, right? But I want to step outside of my comfort zone. And that's how I keep up with this lifelong learning journey. That's it for part one of our interview with Colin Lacey, senior software engineer at Cisco. Stay tuned for part two, which will feature Colin's continued discussion with Matt and Kareem about crucial resources to use, especially when you're getting started in your software career. Colin also talks about his ultimate high and low points in his career, as well as advice for specific directions to take for beginners. To find other stories and advice from experts like Colin, and to get news about the ever-changing world of Cisco certifications, please subscribe to the Cisco Learning Network podcast. And to find the study resources that Matt, Colin, and Kareem mentioned, please visit the Cisco Learning Network at learningnetwork.cisco.com. There, you can find all kinds of training videos, study guides, exam topics, and an entire community of others to help support you on your learning journey. Thanks for listening. <laughs>